This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special episode covering the topic of cancer survivorship and the power of relationship-based care. And we have two amazing guests. My friend Sydney Townsend is here to share her story of cancer survivorship and joining her in this interview is Dr. Catherine Hudson, her oncologist, who you will learn shared a very special bond with Sydney as her treating physician. I'd like to tell you all a little bit about Sydney. She was diagnosed with cancer in June, 2018, three months after giving birth to her first child. As a former boxer, she realized she was in the fight of her life and she never gave up. After surviving her bout with cancer, her healing journey came full circle by joining the staff of Texas Oncology in 2021, the practice that treated her cancer. As their director of virtual care so she could provide care to others in the same fight. Her story is truly one of triumph and inspiration, and I'm elated to have her on our show this week. And for the physician perspective, we have Dr. Catherine Hudson, a hematologist and oncologist at Texas Oncology, and she's also the director of survivorship at the practice, which allows her to extend the impact that she makes as a clinician by improving supportive care models for Texas cancer patients and, and survivors. When you hear from Dr. Hudson in this interview, you will immediately realize the power of the provider-patient relationship when you hear about how she was able to care for Sydney and really understand how important the relationship is in value-based oncology care. So are you ready to be inspired? Well, let's go ahead and hear from Sydney and Dr. Hudson as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Sydney and Dr. Hudson, it's so great to have you on the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Really glad to be here. We're going to discuss this amazing patient-provider relationship you both have and your story of survivorship, Sydney. But let's first talk about the work you both do at Texas Oncology. Texas Oncology is one of the largest cancer care providers and cancer care research teams in Texas with 210 sites of service, 
500 physicians serving half of all cancer patients in the state of Texas, which I believe is around 60,000 patients per year. And Sydney, you are the director of virtual care. And Dr. Hudson, you're a hematologist and oncologist, as well as the director of survivorship for the practice. Can you both provide our listeners with a brief overview of your work at Texas Oncology? And most importantly, I'd love to hear about how this work connects to your personal why. How does your role in service to cancer patients allow you to connect with your inner purpose? Well, thank you for that introduction. I'm Katherine Hudson. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I'm also the director of survivorship at Texas Oncology. That's across the whole state of Texas. My goal as a director of survivorship is to help all of us at Texas Oncology enhance quality of life, decrease risk of cancer recurrence, and promote overall health as much as possible for our cancer survivors. And this really starts at the time of diagnosis. This may seem like an obvious goal for any cancer organization, but traditionally in the past, the field of oncology has been so focused on the actual therapy and treatment for cancer, which is of course paramount to everything we do in treating cancer, but historically managing side effects, toxicities, promoting overall health has been in the background. And so we want to emphasize that, bring it to the forefront and focus on the whole picture of health in the long term for our cancer survivors. And I'm Sydney Townsend. I'm the director of virtual care at Texas Oncology. I lead the virtual care program statewide. My role is to help us look beyond telemedicine as a tool for episodic care, which is what we've been doing through the pandemic, and instead start thinking about virtual care as a full, robust system that helps us redefine how, when, and where we deliver care for the best patient and provider experience, the best health outcomes, and the lowest cost. This is a new direction for Texas Oncology, and I'm really excited to lead it. And I do this work because I'm a survivor and I'm so glad to be at Texas Oncology. I'm a patient at Texas Oncology and a survivor. I'll tell you more about that journey soon, but Texas Oncology gave me the opportunity to turn what I was afraid would be my greatest weakness coming into the workforce as a cancer survivor. I didn't know if employers would want to hire me, but Texas Oncology saw that and has enabled me to turn my survivorship into a superpower at work. So I can bring my personal experience and professional experience to help us redefine virtual care at Texas Oncology. And I am so lucky to work with Sydney since we have a history as a a doctor-patient relationship. I'll speak to my why as well. I really think of my job as a vocation and my vocation is to care for cancer patients to the best of my ability on a one-to-one level, but my director of survivorship role also helps me to do this on a larger scale with many of our patients. So to me, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah, I'm living proof. You do it really well. You've helped me survive and thrive. Here I am. So thank you. Sydney and Dr. Hudson, this is Daniel. It's such a pleasure to meet you and really grateful to have you on today. I'd love to learn more about Texas Oncology's approach to survivorship. According to the National Cancer Institute, there are nearly 17 million cancer survivors in the U.S., and each one experiences cancer survivorship differently, I presume. Sometimes cancer survivorship might mean a cure. Sometimes it might mean living with cancer. In other cases, survivorship involves a new normal that requires adapting to a permanent 
side effect of the cancer treatment. So cancer survivorship is as unique as each cancer survivor. Dr. Hudson, can you start by providing our listeners with an overview of Texas Oncology, the supportive care that it provides to improve the quality of life for cancer survivors? Absolutely. We have a large program that has several different facets. First, after a survivor completes their treatment, we have a survivorship visit where they meet with one of their providers and we go over everything that happened during the course of their cancer treatment, talk about all of the toxicity or side effect that they may have had, how it has impacted them physically and emotionally, and how we're going to move forward into the survivorship phase where we're really focusing on preventing recurrence and maximizing overall health and quality of life. And that visit can serve as a springboard to connect survivors to other providers that may help them with whatever they are dealing with. For example, physical therapy, if they are deconditioned from their cancer therapy, palliative care, which I do in my mind, fits hand in hand with survivorship care, pain management, nutrition, if they've had issues with malnutrition, or if they need to improve their overall nutrition so that they can be a healthier weight, for example. Social work and mental health, but fear of recurrence is a big issue for survivors, that, and that's something we can help with. And then, of course, screening, moving forward, and prevention of cancer recurrence. So our program incorporates all of those things, and we really try to tailor it to each individual patient because every survivor has different needs. Sydney, your story of survivorship has really moved me, and I'm so grateful to have you share it with our listeners. I mean, your diagnosis came at a time in your life when you were experiencing such profound joy. You got married to Brian in September of 2017, and you gave birth to your beautiful daughter, Maxine, in March 2018. And then three months later, your life was completely turned upside down when you received a diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And this wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, you had just delivered your first child. You should be changing diapers, not scheduling rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, can you share your story in this fight with cancer from the time you were diagnosed in the summer of 2018 through your healing journey over the last three years? What went through your mind in these early stages of diagnosis and how did you find the courage to face it? Also, what were some of your biggest setbacks and obstacles along the way? Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. It has been whew, quite the journey. As you said, you know, in March of 2018, I had just had a baby, my first baby, my only baby, and I was deep in motherhood and caregiving. And I started having some pain in my ribs and then my back. And then it was worse in my back to the point where I couldn't lift, you know, an eight or 10 pound baby. And I thought this is not right. So eventually I got sent for an MRI for that. And I had just returned to work second week back at work doing virtual care for a large organization. And before I even got back to my desk from that MRI, the uh, doctor had called and said, there's something really wrong. You, you need to get in to see a hematologist tomorrow. And, you know, I worked in healthcare. I knew that word <laughs> hematologist, oncologist. I thought there is a mix up. This can't be right. And when I did get in and got my diagnosis, my world stopped. I suddenly 
every ounce of my being was focused on supporting this baby. And now I had to turn that to myself. How could I live to be there for her? And it was so hard. It was so scary. I hope many people never have to experience something so life-altering and dramatic. But for me, I had a very rare complication of my leukemia that I fractured 20 vertebrae in my spine. So from the Friday that I went in to Texas Oncology and they drew bone marrow samples, that was Father's Day weekend of 2018. So we had our first Father's Day as a family on that Sunday. By Monday to when I received the official diagnosis, I could no longer walk. I was on a walker to get to the front door, then in a wheelchair. I was told you have to go to the hospital now. You can't pack your bags. You can't go say goodbye to your baby. You're going straight to the hospital. And by the time I arrived there, uh, I was septic and I had fractured even more vertebrae. So it was just like full stop in life. And it was really hard. And those first three weeks, I had to be hospitalized for the first round of chemo. I think Dr. Hudson arranged that uh, they could sneak Maxine in for one visit because it was so important for me, for my emotional well-being to see her and know she was okay. That was part of making sure that I was okay. Then, you know, as I finished that round, I got to go home for a few days, but for the next six months, I was in intensive chemo, mostly in the hospital. When I wasn't in the hospital, often I was bouncing back to the hospital and I couldn't see Maxine, my daughter, except for a handful of days a month when my blood counts were high enough to make it safe. You know, she was in daycare. My husband was taking care of her as best he could and then daycare. And then we had family friends who stepped up and really surrounded us and took care of her. And my parents focused on taking care of me. So I moved out of the house with Brian and Maxine, mostly for my safety. And then I could only see her a few days a month. And it was really hard. So I got through those first six months of the intensive chemo and tried to do physical therapy as best I could during that time as well. Everything focused on, I have a baby I have to get home to. Every stop along the way, I made sure to talk to my caregivers about my newborn, how old she was. Let me show a picture to try to recruit them to my fight, right? That my purpose, it felt so big to get home to her. And, and I did. But when I finished those eight intensive rounds, I still had 24 more rounds of chemo of maintenance as part of a clinical trial that I was in. So, you know, it was another almost two years of continued chemo. And about every time I felt better, it was time for chemo again, and I'd be down for a week and then be recovering. So it was a, a very intense and long journey, but Dr. Hudson was there every step of the way. And I found out early on in my treatment that she was pregnant with her third child. And that moment made me feel like she's got me. She gets it. She knows what a mother needs and that a mother needs to be home with her child. And she will make sure that I get there. And having that trust and confidence was a huge part of my journey. Sydney, wow. What a, I'm almost at a loss for words. What a challenging experience. And, and thank you for sharing with us. I, I just can't imagine the difficulties and complexities of, of that kind of 
life experience and, you know, having my own kids and understanding how important they are. It just, it's really powerful to hear your story. Here on the race to value, we focus intently on the importance of the provider and patient relationship because we know that it's so important to great clinical outcomes. However, we have the systematically broken fee-for-service system, and we often see patient interactions that are limited in that relationship expression. And since the fee-for-service game is played by favoring transactional interactions over meaningful relationships, patients don't often receive holistic whole-person care like your experience. But something very different is going on at Texas Oncology because the relationship between you both is deep and it's created an idealized environment of care for you, Sydney. Dr. Hudson, I'm particularly interested in how you were able to connect with Sydney as a patient, because as she mentioned, you were an expecting mother pregnant with your third child and, and caring for a new mother. And Sydney, can you describe also how you were able to establish trust in Dr. Hudson as a new patient? And Dr. Hudson, how are you able to foster empathy and connectedness with your patients? In treating Sydney, how did your innate understanding of her needs as a new mother allow you to better care for her emotional state during the treatment process. And since Sydney was immunosuppressed during her chemotherapy, what did you have to do to help her see her baby Maxine when in the hospital? For me, it was and is an honor to be Sydney's oncologist. How could you not have so much empathy and a deep connection with a woman who is going through this awful experience. You know, as a mom, I know firsthand the instant bond you have with your baby and the strong desire and need to do whatever it takes to care for that child and to be healthy enough to be the mother you want to be to your child. So from the beginning of our long journey together, there was no question that we needed to do whatever it takes to cure Sydney of her cancer, even though we knew from the get-go it would be a long road, and it has been, but we were going to be aggressive and keep our eye on that goal. And that led to a lot of difficulties, you know, with this type of chemotherapy and intensive cancer treatment leads to very deep immunosuppression. And this was before COVID, but honestly, it's not even that different in the era of COVID as compared to before, that you have to be really careful with being exposed to any common cold, any virus, any bug going around, because that could be life-threatening if you're on chemotherapy and you get sick from something like that. So it required a lot of hard choices. And Sydney alluded to not being able to see Maxine when she was in the hospital. And that was necessary for that time. And the hospital doesn't allow children in. So she mentioned that we had we were able to sneak Maxine in once or twice. And that was an example of how we had to balance treatment and being as careful as we could with just the need to see your baby when you just had your first child and how hard it is to be separated from, from your child. So we had to make some calculated risk decisions. And luckily everything turned out for the best. And I, I think when you're in that situation, going through such a hard thing, you know, those moments of comfort and being around those you love really give you so much strength and power to go on. I think those things are really important, even though they still were 
less frequent than we would have liked. I think every time that she was able to see Maxine kept her and all of her care team, including myself, focused on what the long-term goal was, was to get through this three-year period so that she could be cured of cancer and thrive long-term as a mother. Sydney, do you want to discuss, you know, just how you were able to establish trust with, with Dr. Hudson? I mean, your new patient, can you speak a little bit about that? Well, to be honest, it was hard. It was scary, right? So many things were happening and we want to check and double check. And, and I have uh, eventually apologized for giving her a hard time at the beginning because um, <laughs> it was scary and it was hard, but she was constant and steady and sure. And that went a long way. And knowing that she was a mother who understood my battle went a long way. And we had a very long time to build a nice long relationship with so much treatment. <laughs> but, you know, there was the mother piece, which is the huge anchor, the tie that binds and the huge anchor. And that created a great platform for trust. But I think another big piece for me that stands out is, you know, she's a working mother and I was planning to be a working mother. And it took you know, this, I had the six months of intensive chemo where I was just a mess and on a broken back. I couldn't walk. But for some reason, I kept thinking I was like going back to work right away, just around the corner. And I remember a conversation in her office pretty soon after I finished the intensive chemo, but was in the maintenance. And I said, I, I think I'm, I'm supposed to be back at work. And she was like, no, Sydney, this is really hard. The work that you're doing, this is hard it's okay to stop and focus on this. This is a time to take care of yourself and your body and work will be there. And that really shifted my perspective and freed me from a lot of pressure I was putting on myself. You know, here's a woman with an incredible career and a family. I felt like that's what I had to be doing immediately. And she could help me see that I could slow down and take time to build myself first, to take care of Maxine, and then think about work. And that meant a lot to me um, and was a really key part of shifting into the big middle phase of treatment and recovery for me to allow myself to really focus on the present moment, the present battle, and not be pressuring myself about the future all the time. The future still came, <laughs> here I am, but that was huge. You mentioned the question of trust, and I think trust is something that takes time to build between a physician and a patient, especially with this situation where one has acute leukemia, where oftentimes they were feeling fine, everything was going on fine. Like in, in Sydney's case, she had a healthy baby, everything was going great, and then bam, all of a sudden, Sydney was really, really sick out of the blue. And that is how acute leukemia has happened. And then in walks an oncologist who says, oh, here's this plan for the next three years of your life. And it's like your life is completely changed. It's like a semi-truck just hit you. And so it's a very hard situation to instantly trust your physician. And I think that's true with a lot of cancer cases, but especially in acute leukemia. It's just such a difficult time. And your world is totally upside down. It's hard to know which way is up, who to trust, who not to trust. And so I think it just takes time. And as an oncologist, I just try to take it step by step. We need to go over things over and over again and share with patients that my goal 
is to walk with them through this cancer journey so that we can do everything we can to cure them of this cancer and to help them feel better, help them get back to their life. Wouldn't be the same life that it was before, but a different version that where they could still be healthy and, and the person that they want to be. It definitely takes time and Sydney and I did have a lot of time together through all those hospitalizations and, and office visits. And I certainly, we did share that mother bond as I was hugely pregnant by the, the first time I met her. And so it's pretty obvious. And it was so special that we could talk about our babies and our, our children together. We just instantly got it from the beginning. Well, it's, it's just so gratifying to hear about this trust that was established throughout the the caregiving experience, Dr. Hudson. And Daniel mentioned some of the inherent challenges that we have in our broken, if you will, fee-for-service system mm-hmm. that doesn't really value deep and meaningful relationships above some of the transactional activity. And you've, you've spoken a great deal about how you, you view patient care in a very whole person way, and it shows in your care for Sydney. But I wanted to ask you also, how important is it to include the family and caregivers in, in the relationship as well to engage that support structure to provide optimal care for patients going through cancer? I'm glad you brought that up because it is so essential. Every person going through cancer, especially one like this, really needs a good support system. And we know that patients who have good support systems have better outcomes and tolerate their treatment better and do better overall from their cancer. So it is so important that they're involved and also knowledgeable what's going on that they can call us as well. We can call them. And so it really is more of a a group experience, especially when a patient is newly diagnosed, if they're sick after going through chemotherapy, their memory not be as great as it usually is, or they're not feeling well, they're not taking in everything that that they're hearing. And so it's always great to have a second set of ears. And so now in the era of COVID, which makes this more difficult, where most cancer offices, including our own, is not allowing multiple people to come into the visit. It's even more important to involve the family. And so I always offer to call them and include them on video chat or just on the phone so that we can involve them and communicate with them as well. Because once they leave our office, they're home with their caregivers. And so that caregiver is stepping into that role once they leave the hospital. And so they really have to be very well-versed and in, in the best way to take care of the cancer survivor. Well, Sydney, when you and I met 10 years ago, one of the coolest things that I learned about you was that you were a boxer. <laughs> I can yeah. only and I can only imagine how you had this mindset to just get in the ring and, and deal with round after round of chemo, you not only had the physical challenges dealing with the cancer, but you mentioned earlier the complication that you had in fracturing 20 of your vertebrae due to this rare complication you had with the leukemia, and you were unable to walk or hold Maxine. And as tough as you are, I can only imagine how difficult it was to overcome such immense physical and emotional challenges during your healing journey. I mean, you had a broken back, the prolonged course of chemo treatment, which persisted for over three years, not being able to see or hold your baby during much of the the first year of her life. And then obviously the fear and the loss of income, which you might've been thinking about as you were planning to be a working mother and just just having this big life change happen. 
what was this experience like for you? And what did you learn about yourself? Did your background in boxing maybe help you and providing you with that grit and determination to persevere? And Dr. Hudson, I also wanted to ask you as a clinician, how do you balance the provision of medical care with the need for a more holistic approach that really honors the whole person and addresses some of the unique and personal challenges related to cancer like like Sydney had? Yeah, so boxing, um, who knew I was training for the fight of my life, as they say. Boxing is something that I've done since I was 14 years old. And I've spent a lot of time teaching and young girls up to grown men, teaching people how to box. And what's interesting about boxing for me is it's fought in rounds, your three minute round and a one minute break and a three minute round and a one minute break. And interestingly, your chemo is done in rounds. So you've got maybe one week on, three weeks off, one week on, three weeks off. And that cadence was familiar in that way. It was a different fight, a different form, but I understood the cadence of giving it your all and resting and recovering and giving it your all and resting and recovering. I had a lot of pictures that I took to every hospital room that I was in and plastered the walls of friends and families and lots of magazine posters, but always in the center of that wall was my boxing coach and some of my favorite quotes from him to keep me engaged in the fight. And it was really helpful to have that experience because this is not a sprint. Cancer is a marathon. And I think mine is longer than most, I think, but for everyone, it, it's not a cold that you're over in a few days. It's a long journey and um, you really have to dig in and be committed. I think that boxing probably, this is my opinion, but Sydney, I bet that your boxing really did contribute to your mental strength. I mean, you have so much mental fortitude and focus through that whole three-year period your eye was on that prize and you just kept going. And it was really impressive to watch. I really felt honored to be there with you, Sydney, in that journey and that which continues on in the survivorship period, because it was just amazing how well you just focused and you continued on and just put one foot in front of the other the entire time. Thank you. That means a lot. And I know one of, for me, one of the big milestones was to get back in the boxing gym and to recover in physical therapy enough to the point where I could do that and to be strong enough with my nutrition and eating to be able to do that. And the first time I got back in the ring, not against anyone else, just to do mitts with my trainer, felt like a victory and a milestone. It wasn't the end, but it was a, a huge checkbox on my list on a path back to a new life. Sydney, I love the visual of that and the recognition of how important the mind is in, in this journey and in this battle. It reminds me of an interview you once did about your cancer survivorship. And you said something about the most difficult part of chemo was letting go. And you described it as the ultimate Zen training. As you were going through this existential life crisis, how did you follow a practice of mindfulness and meditation during the challenging time so that you could let go? And did this ultimate Zen training experience during chemo provide you with newfound or different awareness of approach to living that carries through to today? Yeah, Daniel, this was a huge shift for me. I can imagine that probably everyone listening to this podcast is a high achiever, very focused, driven, always has a task list of 800 things to do. And that was me until 
cancer hit me like a Mack truck. And it was really hard to let go of that. And every outlet that I'd ever had, you know, think, put yourself in any hard day that you have at work, family, whatever, you've had a really hard day. It's the end of the day. You're looking forward to what to unwind, probably something physical, maybe a drink, a run, a walk, something social, anything that you can think of likely I could no longer do. I had to sit with myself all the time and a lot of pain, both physical and emotional and make it through that time. And I reached out to a friend who was training at a Zen monastery and asked him for some guidance. And he directed me to meditation for pain. There's a a guy who worked at some large medical centers and has a specific pain meditation guide that I started doing that was hugely helpful. And then I just had to work on myself to let go of that need to be driven and taking care of everything else and everyone else and having plans a week out, a month out, a year out. I had to stop and be present in the moment for every moment, no matter how uncomfortable and just be there. And that's hard work. (laughs) And it really changed me. I didn't realize how much it was changing me when it was happening, but now that I'm out of the worst of it and into a time of survivorship, I can recognize so much difference in myself. I have a much different gauge for what is worth getting upset about at all, just period. And then when I am upset, I'm much more in control and understanding of myself in that moment. Like, wow, this is something hard. Yes, check, it is hard. Okay, I'm upset. Yes, check, that's happening. This is a feeling that I'm having now. This feeling will pass. There will be a next moment. I will move through it. And and it's okay to feel this feeling now. And that's a a huge shift and that carries through in my parenting and my work life and my relationships with my husband and my family. It's just created in me a much stronger centeredness and sense of self that I'm really proud of and feels good. You know, I forged in fire over here. I've got some new skills and I'm, I'm happy about it. I think that's just a great reminder how important the mental piece is for everybody going through cancer diagnosis. And Sydney, you just summarized your journey so beautifully. I wish that everybody going through cancer could have the same experience as you. Sydney, you're truly a superhero. I'm just in awe. And, you know, this is a lesson we could all learn, even if we're not going through what you went through, just the the importance of living in the moment. Dr. Hudson, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and and talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier and helping uh, cancer patients with malnutrition. I mean, that's, a, as I understand, a major side effect of, of cancer treatment and in value-based care. We're always thinking about how to avoid unnecessary treatment, ED visits and hospital admissions. And many people don't realize this, but disease-associated malnutrition and cancer is a main reason for avoidable ED visits and hospital admissions. Malnutrition is one of the most common and most serious side effects of cancer in its treatment. And that condition affects up to 80% of patients, depending on the tumor type and the stage, according to the National Cancer Institute. And it's responsible for nearly one in five 
cancer-related deaths. Dr. Hudson, is there a role to play for evidence-based nutrition interventions within the oncology specialty? And what role does nutrition play in cancer treatment? And how does this food as medicine movement persist throughout survivorship? I'm so glad you're highlighting this really important issue. Nutrition is really important throughout cancer treatment and after cancer treatment as well for maintaining optimal health. We actually recently did our own internal study and data collection looking at patients with GI cancers who had uh, nutritional difficulties and those who had access to a dietitian through our practice were much less likely to be admitted to the hospital, less likely to go to the emergency room. And also, if they were admitted to the hospital, their duration of stay was lower and their total cost of stay was lower. So this highlights how important nutrition care is. And a lot of people with cancer really struggle with malnutrition. We know that patients who have optimal nutrition, or at least have malnutrition, are more likely to finish their cancer therapy and have better outcomes. Malnutrition leads to frailty which can lead to decreased tolerance of treatment, decreased physical activity, and all of those things snowball into increased illness and worse outcomes from cancer treatment. So it's really important. We are building our nutrition program right now because we want to identify every patient who has malnutrition through evidence-based screening tools so that these patients can get the nutrition care that that they need. Through treatment, a lot of patients lose their appetite. They may have mouth sores. They may develop nausea. They may have worse appetite. They may have mouth sores. All of these things make it harder to eat. Their taste changes. So maintaining nutrition can be difficult. And so we want to be there to help manage those problems. And so patients can have their optimal diet and maintain their nutrition. Fluids are also very important. Patients who get dehydrated tend to get sick. That can lead to hospitalization as well. So all of these things are critical. Later in the survivorship period, after chemotherapy is done, hopefully, or for some people who have cancer treatment that extends over years, like Sydney did, it's also important to maintain as best as possible a normal body weight. That can be a controversial statement because what is someone's ideal body weight? But we know that patients who are not obese can have lower recurrence risks of their cancer, are overall healthy, are less likely to have an early death after cancer treatment. And so that's kind of the flip side of malnutrition is the pandemic of obesity that is in our country right now. So nutrition counseling is also important so that we can help patients Maintaining normal weight, really emphasize maximizing the intake of plants in one's diet, limiting processed foods, limiting alcohol, um, limiting processed meat so that they can be as healthy as possible. We have data that people who are able to maintain a normal body weight have less recurrence risk of cancer, especially breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer. Sydney, do you want to add your thoughts? I'd be interested in your thoughts on the malnutrition topic. Yeah. You know, nutrition was huge in my journey too. And having that support every step of the way is important because it changes. It's so bewildering. You know, I went from being postpartum or pregnant at a higher weight postpartum thinking like, oh, I want to lose weight to suddenly in a phase of malnutrition and not wanting to eat. And it was really helpful 
to get counseling on what kind of foods, if I don't want to eat, how can I maximize what I do eat? And to focus on why I'm eating for me, it was to have the energy to get home, to see my baby, to have the energy to do activities with her, you know, putting a why with it also for better outcome and survival, like Dr. Hudson said, but, you know, Mm -hmm. having that immediate goal helps. And then I went through this long phase of couldn't eat, lost so much weight, couldn't gain weight. And then magically somewhere along the way, I had been taking steroids the whole way, but they seemed to kick in and suddenly I started rapidly gaining weight that I couldn't control. And that was scary for me too. And being able to talk to Dr. Hudson about that. And it felt like one month I was in her office saying, do you have any appetite stimulants I can't eat? And the next month I said, do you have any appetite suppressants? I can't stop eating. She didn't give me medication for either. She gave me great advice (laughs) on approaching nutrition, but your body is doing these bizarre contortions that you've never experienced before and different things in different parts of your journey. So having a care team that can step to your side and understand your changing needs is huge. And I was really grateful for it. Sydney, I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier. And you you recently started a new role as a director of virtual care at Texas Oncology, the same place where you spent these many years fighting for and winning back your future. And it's so awesome to see how your survivorship journey has brought things full circle for you. I want to talk about how telemedicine is such an important aspect of value-based care delivery and hear your perspective on how virtual care can be utilized to improve health equity and provide care in areas and to individuals who might not be able to readily receive it. And given the outdated reimbursement structures and the paradoxical lack of agility within electronic systems that have limited widespread adoption, you know, what is your perspective on how COVID-19 might serve as the catalyst to make virtual care more widely used in oncology? Uh We're into my most like biggest passion area. I'm so excited that you asked. When I started my career in virtual care, we were busy trying to convince providers that this was a safe option and trying to convince payers to pay for it. And then I took a long time out to be a professional patient. And during that time, the pandemic stepped in and changed everything. Suddenly CMS reversed its payment rules and now pays for patients to have telemedicine visits done when the patient's at home. Instead of before you had to be in a rural designated area in a clinic in a rural designated area, which was very hard to find that patient population. So now we can serve pretty much everyone with telemedicine from a reimbursement standpoint. But then From a person standpoint, when we talk about health equity, this is a huge shift in allowing people to access care more easily. If you are in a hourly paying job and you can schedule your telemedicine visit during your lunch break and you don't have to drive there and drive back and wait in the clinic and you're not taking a half a day off for an appointment, then you now can get your care more frequently and do those follow-ups you're supposed to be doing. There is a flip side that, of course, there is a digital divide in our country. Not everyone has the same access to internet in various parts of the state. And then people have different access even to data plans. So just because I offer a telemedicine visit doesn't necessarily mean that you have the data plan to cover that visit or the internet access. 
So that's something that we're seeing addressed somewhat at the federal and state level by government entities, but that will take a while. And in the meantime, we are, are working in the background on creative ways to have community partnerships so that people that may not have access to broadband or data could go to a center and do their telemedicine visit from there. And something that we're looking at. But overall, really see virtual care as an opportunity to make care more accessible to everyone. So it's an exciting shift. So as I mentioned before, CMS didn't pay for telemedicine visits when a patient was at home. And in oncology, I think around 60% of our patients are on Medicare. It's older population. So it was just a no-go. And then pandemic happened, the rules changed. And from March of 2020 to March of 2021, Texas Oncology did over 250,000 telemedicine visits. It was a key part of safely delivering care during a pandemic. And as Dr. Hudson said, pandemic or no pandemic, any cold and virus is a threat to an oncology patient. And having an option for safer care at home when medically appropriate is a huge step forward for oncology patients. And we have such a longitudinal relationship with our patients. For us, telemedicine will never replace in-person care. It doesn't make sense. You have to come in for your chemo. There's times that you need a hands-on exam. There's times that you need tests and labs in person. And the ability to intersperse when appropriate those telemedicine visits to offer perhaps urgent telemedicine on-demand visits where we can see patients and help them avoid going to the hospital. That's huge. And I can tell you as a cancer patient, there were many times that the thought of dragging myself to the clinic was like more than I could even bear. So it's a huge win for us and our patients, most importantly. We're really excited about that. Thank you for sharing that. And I learned a lot. We talk a lot about telemedicine on our, on our podcast, but there was a moment in your response when you were talking about how we need to bridge this digital divide. And it made me think about how having access to telehealth is actually, or, or the internet for that matter, is a social determinant. And social determinants of health are just so important in the health and well-being of a person. And it's compounded when you look at survivorship. I'm really interested in how Texas Oncology builds a survivorship community that supports patients in the long term. We've talked so far in this interview about the importance of nutrition and mindfulness. And one of the really cool things that I saw that you've done, Dr. Hudson, is you spearheaded an initiative called the Survive and Thrive Symposium, which brings cancer patients and caregivers together with experts in the field. And it, it's a relaxed one-day event. You have expert presentations. You have engaging workshops. How does the Survive and Thrive event promote survivorship skills and wellness for cancer survivors and their loved ones and caregivers? And, you know, what other things are, are you thinking about in terms of providing that sense of community that survivors need to get through and convalesce and, and be their best self? Yeah, thanks for mentioning this. I am really proud of our Survive and Thrive series. This is done in conjunction with the Texas Oncology Foundation, which is a nonprofit whose goal is to improve quality of life health of cancer survivors in Texas. And before the pandemic, we had started what we called Survive and Thrive Symposiums in different towns and cities across Texas, near Texas oncology sites. And we invited all of our patients, including 
non-Texas oncology patients. And we brought in experts from all around the country to talk about survivorship issues and also to foster a sense of community amongst cancer survivors so people can get to know other survivors and develop relationships and friendships and hopefully a network um, that they could benefit from. And it was really to offer support. And it was so fantastic. We always brought in uh, one of a cancer survivor who had a really powerful story to share, much like Sydney's that was inspiring. Um, that could help patients who are going through still the difficult part of the treatment so they could see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that things would improve and they could be healthy again. So the pandemic threw us for a loop and we had to cancel all of our symposiums for a year. And then we came up with the idea of changing it to a webinar series, or we call it the boot camp series. So rather than having a one-day event, we now have different longitudinal events over a couple of weeks in which uh, survivors can join from wherever across the state of Texas. And we still bring in those experts where they will teach virtually. And I'm looking at the, the camp experience, the boot camp experience coming up soon. And they're focusing on mental health, spirituality, late and long-term effects of cancer treatment, how to deal with fear of occurrence, nutrition. They have yoga and exercise classes virtually, how to journal, Usually they have an art class in there. And I have patients who have participated and have really enjoyed it. In addition to the educational piece, they have workshops or support groups where they'll put together a smaller group of survivors. And they really get to know each other well, even though they don't live in the same town or city. And it has been just a wonderful thing to witness on the other side. My patients have just really enjoyed it and felt that they got a lot out of it. So I'm just so thrilled that we're doing this. I, I really think it fosters community. It's on a different scale than it was before now that it's virtual, but it really allows us to access so many more survivors throughout the state in rural areas, patients who are unable to travel because they're worried about COVID or because they're immunosuppressed. So we've really been able to expand it and, and share that with a lot more survivors, which I'm just thrilled with. Back to the virtual care component that Sydney was talking about with our virtual visits, it's really also important for our survivorship visits too. Not only our survivorship care plan visits, that occurs after a patient finishes their primary cancer treatment, but also for visits with our dietitians, for our counselors. Now patients don't need to travel to an office to have those meetings. Our dietitians and counselors and our other providers can access so many more patients across boundaries and cities, even down to rural areas in the valley and things like that. So I think it's really going to help us provide much better survivorship care. And so I'm so glad that uh, this program now exists. It's one of the silver linings of the pandemic, maybe the only silver lining. It is. And that reminds me, I did want to also touch on how telemedicine and telehealth is a part of value-based care. Telemedicine and telehealth allows us to provide that easier access to our patients to get those interventions that we know improve their outcomes and keep them out of the emergency department. If you've got a great nutritionist that's easy to access, then hopefully you won't be in the hospital for malnutrition. If you can see a provider on demand same day for an urgent issue, then hopefully you can get directed to the appropriate level of care instead of bouncing in and out of the emergency room. 
you know, cancer patients are very fragile. There will always be a component of emergent care and hospital care, but there's so much that we can do with telemedicine, telehealth, virtual care models like remote patient monitoring and e-patient reported outcomes that we're using that really help us engage our patients early and engage our care team with that care to ensure the patient is getting the right care when and where they need it. And that is how we help move from a fee-for-service model into a value-based model because we know that we can reduce total cost of care with these interventions. And that's why we're building a really robust virtual care strategy at Texas Oncology. Telemedicine has allowed us to access patients that we weren't able to access before, especially in the era of COVID. If a patient, one of our patients had COVID, they were not able to come into our office because we can't risk the exposure of our other immunocompromised patients, but we're able to have telemedicine visits with them and still care for them in their home and set them up for antibody treatments or make sure that uh, they're stable and don't need to go to the hospital and things like that. Also, a lot of cancer patients have mobility issues or have transportation issues. It's not easy for them to travel, especially if they don't live close to the cancer center. So it really is a huge boon that we can really care for patients much better than we could before. Dr. Hudson, Sydney, I just want to thank you both so much. You've both shared some amazing examples of survivorship and relationship-based care. And I just can't express enough thanks for you participating with us today on this episode. We really enjoyed speaking with you. As we wrap up, Sydney, as a cancer survivor, what would you tell others listening to this podcast who are struggling with their own diagnosis or have a a family member that's that has that diagnosis. And Dr. Hudson, how can people find out more about your work as an oncology provider, researcher, and survivorship expert? As a cancer patient and survivor, I would say to others that I see you. This feels hard because it is hard. It's really hard. And you can do hard things. And it's easier when you get the help that you need. So lean on your care team ask for the help that you need, lean on your family and friends. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help. And if you don't have that community to support you, ask the social worker at your clinic or provider's office to help you find those resources because there are people that care. And this is hard work that no one can do alone. You and only you will be the one who experiences this. You are at the center of it but surround yourself with a universe of help. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm so thrilled to share our story, Sydney's story, and everything that we at Texas Oncology are striving towards in survivorship. And also, I'm so thrilled to share how Sydney, as a survivor and a patient of Texas Oncology, has now come back to work with us to improve our quality of care we are just so lucky to now work together on a different level towards the same shared goal. And you couldn't have a more passionate, smart person working towards the same goal of quality and excellent care of survivors. If people want to find out more about my work, you could go on Facebook and look up the Texas Oncology Foundation. You could look me up on LinkedIn and feel free to message me. 
Sydney and Dr. Hudson, thanks so much for joining us this week. I've learned so much about cancer survivorship and the power of relationship-based care. And I know our listeners have, have enjoyed this interview today. So it's just such a great pleasure. And thanks again for joining us this week. Thanks for having us. This was a great opportunity. It's an amazing thing that you guys do, getting messages out to the community of administrators and providers out there that want to deliver care better and differently. And we're excited to be a part of that community. Thank you. Thank you so much.